There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the BFI podcast, Bits and Bobs from across British film culture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry Barnes, digital editor at the BFI, recording again this week in the buzzy, yes, buzzy foyer of our Stephen Street main office. The beating heart of British film is here, or around here, somewhere, perhaps under the floorboards. Coming up this episode, we have archive audio of Vanessa Redgrave talking about how directors in the 1960s sexed up their female stars. An interview with Nicola Daly, DOP, on the phantasmagoric British bullying drama Pincushion. Gary McQueen on the influence of his uncle Alexander McQueen on UK culture. And a chat with Cinema Rediscovered's Tara Judah about the evolution of film criticism, which this Neanderthal ex-critic is giving five. First, let's head back to 1991 when actors Vanessa Redgrave and Simon Callow came to the BFI South Bank, then known as the National Film Theatre, to talk about Redgrave's career, including her connection to Woodfall Films. And wouldn't you know it, we've just released a collection of the company's classic titles. More info on that after the piece. Anyway, here's Redgrave on Woodfall, working with Antonioni, and the importance of understanding every human impulse, even the icky ones. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I just wondered if we could touch very lightly at the beginning on um, your very beginnings, your own beginnings in film. Uh, what was your first movie, for example? The first movie was a, a British Lion movie. It's, um, it caused a lot of excitement because it featured a, an open heart operation, and I think that was really the only exciting thing about it. Uh, um, but that had never been seen before in the cinema. And my father was playing, it was a story about a conflict between the young and the old, and I was, uh, I was literally imprisoned in an image of how the British film industry saw women in two, literally two kinds of ways. There was the way which Sylvia Sims knows all about when they made me look like they made her look, hair up in a French pleat. And uh, since human beings are supposed to have, if they're women, very curved mouths, I had to go in at seven o'clock every morning and have a very big curved mouth <laughs> painted over my very thin mouth. <laughs> And uh, since women are supposed to, all women at that time were supposed to have bosoms, either very big bosoms if you were Sabrina or if you were Diana Dawes, or modest bosoms uh, if you were playing nice young ladies like me and Sylvia Sims. <laughs> but bosoms you had to have, and I didn't and never have had much of a bosom, so I had a padded bra and... Um, stockings and flat shoes because I was tall and I felt a very strange creature. I felt very frightened and I wasn't very good. I didn't know why we were doing what we were doing except I was very glad to get a chance to break through into films as they were then. Yeah. So in a way it was a good experience because I actually worked in the British film industry as it was before everything changed with the free cinema, Lindsay Anderson, Carol Rice, Tony Richardson, and all of them. And it was a pretty terrifying place. In the 60s, people were saying in America, because at that brief moment, anything that was British was considered to be fantastic. <laughs> and anything that was American was supposed to be the bottoms. Then it all changed round again, yes. so on. But, and they were always saying, well, it's your classical training, and so on, and I said, well, of course, classical training is wonderful, it's necessary, but really, I can't see what you're talking about. You've got fantastic actors mm. that I admire, that I look up to. Aren't we getting things out of perspective here? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a hangover mm. uh, that is sometimes there's still a view that screen acting is, is of a less caliber than mm. theater acting. I think screen acting is, is not only on, this, on a par, but... I think anybody, I mean, I'm sure you, well, I better ask you in case, I might, better not assume it. I feel I've learned an awful lot about working in the theatre from working in films. Yes, absolutely. Do you feel the absolutely. same? Absolutely. And it is, it, it is quite hard to define what that is, except the ability to live in the moment absolutely and completely in a way that the theatre sometimes presupposes mm. the next moment always, do you know, the, 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 and the whole sequence of moments. We talked earlier, you, you, you were saying that the, the, the why of, of any enterprise is the most important thing in it. Why are we doing this? Why, what, what is the final objective of it all? And then, as you said, many problems disappear just because mm. you're focused on mm. the objective. So with Antonioni, what was the why of it? 
Well, the why he had, I understood that here I was working with somebody like Picasso. Yeah. And that you're not going to sit down by Picasso's side and say, why have you just completely erased this wonderful painting? Mm. And um, because perhaps at that moment he won't know why, mm. or perhaps will not be able to talk about it until later. Mm. He's driven, and you have to go with his process because after all, he's light years ahead of you. Yeah. And I felt the same way with Antonioni, that yeah. he's light years ahead and where he'd conceived everything and why. And I very, I very seldom asked. I, I just thought the why is contained already in what he's given me to do. And if I do just what he's given me to do, we'll all find out why. But that's, that's unusual. Yes. I think the main thing is the immediacy of film, that um, all filmmakers and all directors, whatever their points of view and whoever they're working and however they approach directing, it's based on the immediacy of a moment uh, which cannot be approached in the formal way from, well, this happened, A, B, C, D, and this moment is F. So if it's F, then the letter that comes before F, A, B, C, D, E, uh, will have to be overshadowing F. But that's not really how life is. And the cinema doesn't like that approach. You can feel it, you can smell it when you see a film where that approach has yeah. dominated too much. A kind of linear, uh, irrational, uh, Yes, illogical. because life is full of sharp changes yeah. from quantity to quality. And the more that is caught in the individual approach of the filmmaker, yes. The more we feel that life's there, and, and every time we feel that, I think this is where cinema has gained so much from yes. uh, ahead of theatre, which has tended to be bound by more formal yeah. approaches. On playing for time, you you uh, um, uh, uh, you all all of you Every actresses one of us shaved had our heads shaved, shaved your yes. heads, and that was the actual shaving of the heads, as you say in the book, was a, a kind of in a way, the moment that tipped you over into the reality. Mm. Mm. Yes, it was crucial, because then only was it possible to understand why the Nazis did it. Yeah. They did it to take people's humanity away from them, to make them into objects or animals. That's why they shaved the Jewish people's heads, to yeah. turn them into something like that had no name and had no history to take away their humanity. But you can't know that however many times you read it and you can feel for it. And I had read this history but and uh, for many, many years and studied it a lot. But until you see what happens to a human being when their hair is taken from them, man or woman, you don't know really the the depths of what fascism was about. The thing is, our, our work has to be... Now, I'm not sure if I attributed it correctly when I said it was Marcus Aurelius, but this is human, therefore we cannot say it is disgust... It disgusts me. It can be disgusting for a human being to do it, but we cannot say it disgusts me, therefore I do not want to know about it or touch it. If it's human, then as an actress, never mind being a human being too, but I have to know and understand 
as a writer has to know and understand and we've got to try and share any knowledge that we can, whether it's in statistical form or medical form or in artistic form or social form, what are these terrible problems we have? And if we say, I mean, I was really interested, now I will stop, Simon, because it is you, but I was reading this wonderful book, uh, dipping back into this wonderful book about Carson McCullers, that by Virginia, what is her name? Spencer Carr. Spencer Carr, big, big, big book. And apparently, I read in this book that um, there was a, a big push to get Carson McCullers to cut a paragraph in her book in which the guys who are sitting on the porch say some very anti-Semitic remarks. And there was a big push to get her to cut it because it was anti-Semitic. And she said, in my view, quite rightly, I'm just showing how this society is. And that's what I've got to do. And that's, it's real. And there is lynching, and there is anti-Semitism, and there is attempts to overcome all of this. And uh, we can't have a sanitized literature in which all our human problems, which are so real, are uh, cancelled away in which everybody's nice. It's not true. It would be great if it were, but it isn't. Vanessa Redgrave and Simon Callow in audio recorded in 1991 there. The Woodford box set is out now and available via the BFI shop. Thanks as always to Sarah Curran in our archive team and Peter Stanley in the tech department for digging out and digitising the audio. Next to Cinema Rediscovered, mixing digital restorations, contemporary classics and film print rarities, the Bristol-based film festival returns for its third edition at the end of next month. Here, producer Tara Judah introduces the Film Critics Workshop, an initiative launched last year that aims to help the next generation of critics find a foothold. My name's Tara Judah, I'm the cinema producer at Watershed Cinema, and I've been involved with Cinema Rediscovered since its inception. Uh, now it's in its third year, so that was two years ago in 2016. Cinema Rediscovered is a archive repertory classic film festival that's mostly interested in engaging with the history of cinema, bringing film print rarities and digital restorations back to the big screen. Uh, so celebration of all of cinema's past. And we're really interested in looking at how those films have dialogue today, how they have impact. There are lots of conversations that we're having today that have context and reference points um, that have been brought up in discussions previously. So it's about kind of finding new ways of looking at those experiences. I mean, I guess that's the, the rediscovered part of this festival is all about how we resituate things and how we revisit those ideas. The Film Critics Workshop is in its second year. We piloted it last year. Um, the first year it was a one-day, really quite intense and jam-packed seminar. Um, this year it's taking place over two days, so it'll be the, Friday, the Thursday and Friday of the festival. What basically the programme hopes to do is to engage with the idea of what the state of film criticism is now in the UK, what our hopes are for the future, how we can speak to what we want and how we can enact what we want in a future of film criticism. 
There is a wider perception that there is one correct way in which to move through this industry if you want to be a critic. And I think for a long time that has been the idea that you must be aiming to be that one broadsheet critic when someone eventually moves on in this industry, which is not very often. But I think what we we should be saying to people is that criticism is important part of the ecology of the film industry because how we speak back to art and how we engage with its ideas is is vital. We can't lose lose touch with that. We need to keep that. It's quite common, I think, in mainland Europe and in some other countries for film critics to be programmers as well as critics or to work in, in kind of a, a looser way across writing and thinking about film, presenting and, and curating with audiences, discussion as part of film criticism, teaching as part of film criticism, that there is there are other ways of kind of doing it and that those things all do build up to the same picture. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the freedom to just swan about the Riviera in Cannes and then go to every single other film festival and get paid a, a decent wage for doing it. It does mean that there are challenges within that. But I think in the UK we think that you can't be more than one thing. And so one of the things I'm really keen to kind of break down is the idea that you can. Um, being a critic is speaking back to art. It's engaging with ideas. It's grappling with those ideas. And that's really, really important. And we all need to be doing that. I think it's really crucial that we're critical of things in our environment. Um, but it doesn't mean that we have to do it instead of something else. We kind of allow a discussion to be two-sided and to say there is this or that and actually what we should be saying is there is this and that. Um, and so one, the advent of a new format or a new voice or a new platform does not necessarily negate the existence of the other. What we have to do, however, is rethink how can they live alongside each other? How can we bring the best of both of these things together? We don't have to say, well, we won't have broadsheets ever again or we won't have, you know, long-form written pieces because we've got podcasts and because we've got television and video essays and YouTube. Um, but what we could say is maybe there's a way in which we can have both of those things. And more interestingly, how are they in discussion with one another? And that's also what we do around formats at the festival. We say, okay, well, we're presenting films as best we can back on the big screen. Sometimes that's through a film print and sometimes that's digitally. It depends. Um, and it's about whether or not a digital restoration is the best way in which to present a film. Or perhaps the 35mm print that still exists is, you know, beautiful and says something about the film and that might be the best way to present the film. So it's also about kind of thinking through the fact that one thing, and I guess that's also the ethos of, you know, the past and the present, one thing doesn't mean goodbye to the other. These things exist side by side. They exist together. They're part of a conversation. Let's enable and open up and explore that conversation. Cinema Rediscovered producer Tara Judah. Applications for the Film Critics Workshop have closed, but ticket sales for Cinema Rediscovered are open. Get yourself along to their website and then down, slash up, slash across to Bristol for one of the best UK film festivals going. Next up, Pincushion. Writer-director Deborah Hayward's debut, which is backed by the BFI, is a candy-coloured fever dream about the horrific bullying a teenage girl faces as she makes a break from her eccentric mum and tries to form her own identity in the real world. The BFI's Nicole Davis spoke to the film's cinematographer Nicola Daly about building the colourful world of two characters who found it easier to live in fantasy. 
Where are you from? I don't know. I was abandoned as a baby, and this old hunchback lady found me in the forest and looked after me. The bells, the bells, the bells. She loved me and raised me, and then one day she walked me to the edge of the forest and set me free. We didn't want to do like a social realism, grim, yeah. sort of um, gritty film. Colour played a huge part of what we wanted to talk about. We use the photography of William Eccleston a lot as okay. reference. Oh, uh, it's so beautiful, and you, you must look it up. He was a real colour pioneer, okay. and um, but he often took mixed lighting, and then under that mixed lighting, the colours sort of twist and change. Right. And what we thought about when we were doing pre-production for Pincushion was here's two characters, you know, mother and daughter, who are pushed to the edges of society. Mm -hmm and sort of, you know, as the white lies become bigger lies and everything becomes a bit twisted, so we sort of twisted the colours. Sure. And that was like a kind of representation of, of where their characters were going. So William Eccleston, who's also a big inspiration on films like Sophia Coppola's Virgin yeah. Suicides. But we wanted to sort of really push the colours in this, which it is quite a bold colour. Yeah, <laughs> colour I was going to say, because both of them have red hair as well, so it's kind of, it's a very, yeah. it's not garish is the wrong word, but it kind of suddenly pops on yeah. the screen. And halfway through the film, um, Lynn, the mother, paints the dining room like a bright pink, and it was really, really pink. And so... Um, I don't think I've ever shot a film before where the colours... Normally you do these sort of more slightly darker tone, muted colours, so on film. But this was a really, really like, whoa, pink. <laughs> we often used star filters, okay. which are really a bit 70s, but... Um, and I don't work. Yeah, yeah, so it's a bit sort of kitsch, you know, but then both of their aesthetic was like that, all the yeah. ornaments and the ice cream colours and the pastels and the, you know, the knitted. Yeah. And we, we talked a lot with Francesca, the production designer, about um, clashing. Like if we had some wallpaper and then we had a, a dress or a costume mm. and then we had something and it all clashed, that'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't often so, get that. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen you before. What's your name? Um, Iona. Oi, new girl. Have you such cock? Probably. <laughs> so many people on Pincushion, you know, while we were making it said, oh, I was bullied at school, I was bullied at school, you know, I was bullied at school. So I think it, it really resonates with a lot of people. Mm. Um, that sort of memory of going to school and the, the, you know, the horrible bitchy girls and all that sort of stuff. So it's, um, I think Deborah's done an amazing job in sort of tapping into a lot of those emotions that people have, and they really, it really resonates with people when they watch it. I just wanted to say. What have you done to yourself? Makeup gives boys the wrong impression. One sign of lipstick. Behave like animals. Iona. <laughs> When I got out of film school, I did a lot of Australian documentaries with, and I was very lucky actually, I worked with the best Australian documentary directors, and I went all over the world, like Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and it really taught me 
not only to be quick but also um, to edit in your head but also to use what you have in the in that location uh, which is great for not huge budget <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but I think what also comes out is my aesthetic which is um, an emotive one and it comes from the emotion of the story and the characters and the interaction of the characters and the subtext of what is going on in the in the film and how the cinematography can not override that not sort of suffocate that but support that and, and illustrate that They like making people unhappy. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. Pincushion back by the BFI is on UK release from the 13th of July. And finally we move from one dark fantasy to another. McQueen, a new documentary about the British fashion designer Alexander McQueen, tells the story of a genuine talent buffeted by the falsehoods of the fashion industry. McQueen's nephew, Gary, who worked for his uncle before his death in 2010, visited the BFI to introduce the film last week. Here he is, along with the film's directors, talking on stage to the BFI's head of events, Gaylene Gould. There's lots of people who say, I discovered McQueen. No one discovered Alexander McQueen. Alexander McQueen discovered himself. I always knew he was quite different. He used to wear these sort of yellow and black camo trousers and he used to have kids chasing him and taking the mickey out of him, really. You know, he was really like a punk. <laughs> you know, he was um, really quite eccentric from a young age. Mm. And, uh, you know, the babysitting that he used to do for us was always quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, lots, of, lots of horror films like Yeah, lots of horror films and horror pictures and horror stories and... How old were you? About six. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was a little less Mary Poppins, a little bit more <laughs> Child Catcher from Chitty Bang Bang. Nobody could create emotions like McQueen. You might find him distasteful, shocking or misogynistic. He made every single headline. I don't want to do a show feeling like you've just had Sunday lunch. I want you to feel repulsed or exhilarated. I never knew there was really anything more to fashion than clothes, but um, I ended up being out of work um, at the time I was about 25, and Lee had a position that opened at menswear uh, for a textile designer. So um, he gave me the opportunity to uh, come into that world. Mm. Um, and I learnt to take my artistic skills mm -hmm. and then apply that to a 3D canvas. Yeah, and th I think the thing that comes across in the film is that this is... He is more than someone who's just making clothes. I mean, even yeah. the fact that he created his story, story world, the way that he made stories around um, his designs was really... It transformed music, it transformed theatre, it transformed... Uh, music videos it transformed all of these all of these things transcended it all yeah yeah, yeah. so there was this kind of interbreeding you know, of um the theatrics and that storytelling and um performance art within his work so it really pushed fashion into something else really i saw myself within the public eye as the gazelle and the gazelle always got eaten he's not really the sort of person you associate with opulence of fashion and all that is 
almost uh, an otherworldly kind of gift that is given and born into a very normal kind of body. Yeah. So... Um, I did smile all the way through the film. That as the clothes got more and more grandiose, his, his clothes got more and more... Yeah, Lee was very uh, practical in weight because he didn't make it about himself. He made it about mm. his visions and about the women that he was dressing. Mm. It was just about mm. his stories, wasn't it, really? When I watch it, I really feel that closeness to Lee, you know, and people have come up to me who didn't know much about Lee or fashion in general, but felt like they connected with him mm. in this film, and they feel that loss even more so as well mm. at the end. We can all be discarded quite easily. You're there, you're gone. <laughs> it's a jungle out there. Gary McQueen speaking at the BFI South Bank. McQueen is on general release now. That's it for this episode. As ever, we're hosted by Acast and available on Apple Podcasts and all other quality podcast providers. Any and all likes, subscribes, rates and reviews received gladly. I'm Henry Barnes. You can find me on Twitter at Henry H. Barnes. My thanks this time around to Nicole Davis for the Pincushion interview, Cinema Rediscovers Tara Judah and to you for listening. We'll be back with more in a couple of weeks. Your final line this episode comes from Vanessa Redgrave. Integrity is so perishable in the summer months of success. Enjoy the fine weather, everybody. Bye.